think there's been a few that we've already mentioned. I'd say this, particularly in regards to leadership, leading yourself and leading others. Give yourself a break. What I mean by that is none of us is perfect. And in life and in leadership, for me, it's not about the, the individual data points. It's about our intention and the trend. If the way we lead ourselves, our lives, and lead others comes from an intention of love rather than fear, that's where we want to be. If the trend over time is heading in the right direction, that's where we want to be. Intention and trend are so much more important than individual. Welcome to Create New Futures, a show about thought-provoking ideas and practices you can use to create and shape your future in life and in business. Join Aviv Shahar, author and innovation strategy consultant, as he shares his proven strategies that have helped clients create breakthrough results. Aviv has guided executives at Fortune 100 companies, and now he wants to help you. Welcome to Create New Futures, where we develop conversations with successful leaders and entrepreneurs to explore how you can create new futures for you and for your organization. This is a event. Today, I'm speaking with Peter Docker. Peter enables leaders to unlock their natural talents. He's focused on leadership that engenders commitment and human connection, an approach that liberates the collective wisdom of teams to generate extraordinary outcomes. Peter served for 25 years as a Royal Air Force senior officer and was a force commander during combat flying operations across the globe. Peter then worked with Simon Sinek for about seven years when they co-authored Find Your Why, a practical guide for discovering purpose for you and your team, together with Simon and David Mead. Naturally, we want to reflect on all of these experiences. Peter, it's great to have you here. Welcome. Aviv, thank you so much for having me on your show. I'm delighted to join you. Let me dive right in by asking you first, what do you enjoy most about your work? I love the aha moments that people seem to have when I share with them different ways of viewing the world, different ways of seeing their own leadership of themselves, as well as leadership of others and the extraordinary outcomes that can be achieved when we just shift our perspective a little. So, yeah, that's what I really enjoy. And conversations like this with, me, with similarly minded individuals, because we're all on the same journey together to help lift others up. So what is the big idea that you are framing in leading from the jump seat and unlocking the power of handing over control? Well, Jump seat leadership or lean from the jump seat is all about lifting others up and giving them the space they need so as they can take the lead when the time is right. And jump seat leadership for me is the highest form of leadership because it's not about, well, retaining or increasing our own power. It's about empowering others. So in future, they can carry forward those things that are deeply important to us. So that's what jump seat leadership is all about. What's the origin story there of why do you call it a jump seat leadership? Well, it goes back a few years now to when I was a senior officer and pilot in the Royal Air Force. And we're flying large passenger jets carrying about 140 people, about the size of the 737 you go on holiday. And I'd just been monitoring a new captain by the name of Callum. And Callum had then gone about six months of training to convert from being a first officer to being a captain in charge of the whole aircraft. And the last part of that training was for me to sit with him, acting as his first officer, to monitor him as he flew from the UK over to Washington, Dulles, and then on to San Francisco, just down the road from where you are. And San Fran, as many people know, is a very busy airport. There's a double cross of runways. They all seem to meet in the middle and there's traffic taking off and landing in every direction. But Callum did an extraordinary job, as I knew he would. We landed, we taxied in, we shut down, the passengers got off. And I turned to him and said, Callum, 
You've done a fantastic job. You're fully signed up now as a fully certified captain. We're staying here tonight. Tomorrow, I'll be down the back with the other passengers as you fly us homewards via Washington Dulles. And it was a great moment, as you can imagine, because he'd worked hard for this and he deserved it. The following morning, I was just reading a magazine uh, whilst Callum was doing his pre-flight preparation. He came up to me, he said, excuse me, sir, because I was his senior, senior officer, so that's how he referred to me. He said, excuse me, it's very busy here in San Fran during the morning departures, the morning rush hour. Can you come and sit on the jump seat just to act as an extra pair of eyes to watch as we tag, to make sure we go the right way, we don't fall into uh, what's called a sin bin when you go the wrong way and watch out for other aircraft. I said, of course, Captain, I'd be delighted. And at the time, Aviv, I thought that was a very courageous thing for him to do because he just got me off his back. You know, this guy had been checked and monitored for the past six months. This was his opportunity just to carry on with a normal crew. But no, he was connected to a high purpose, which was the safety of the aircraft and everybody on board. So I strapped myself into the jump seat, which, as many people might know, is the seat on the flight deck of many large aircraft. You've got the two pilot seats, the captain, the first officer, and the jump seat is immediately behind. And it's usually empty, but a qualified crew member can sit there. When you're strapped in, you can actually touch the pilot you're that close. And you've got a great view of everything that's going on. So that's where Callum wanted me to sit. So I strapped myself in, we fired up, we tacked it out, and Callum had got it all covered, as I knew he would. And we lined up on the runway. It was our turn to depart. We thundered down that runway, and everything was going fine. Until we'd just gone airborne, we'd got to a height of about three or 400 feet, and we had an emergency. And this caused Callan to be wrestling with the controls. He was doing everything he could to keep us away from the ground and from crashing. And what I chose to do in the next couple of seconds would fundamentally affect whether all of us on board that aircraft that day, the 140 people, would survive or not. But here's the thing. I did absolutely nothing. I sat there quite calmly with my hands in my lap because at that moment, I knew that I needed not to be a great leader. I needed to become a great follower. I needed Callum to feel that I had his back, to feel that I had absolute confidence in him, to sort out that situation. And why shouldn't I? You know, he was fully trained, fully qualified. If I had any doubt at all, of his ability to solve that situation, that crisis, that emergency, then I would have had no business signing him up the previous day to be captain qualified to fly this aircraft anywhere in the world. And that gave me the notion of jump seat leadership because it's a great metaphor. You know, all of us at some stage in life, we will hand over control. We will. You know, if the CEO of a company or a fan of a company, we will retire. If we're the leader of a team, we'll move on to another team. Heck, even as parents, which, by the way, I think is one of the biggest leadership challenges many of us will face, our kids eventually grow up, leave home and start to lead their own lives. So jump seat leadership is very much about embracing this inevitability because it turns out that when we do, when we do approach leadership and our team from the perspective of lifting them up so as they can take the lead, It creates extraordinary opportunities right here and now in terms of unleashing that potential that lies within our team. But that is the origin story of of jump seat leadership. Yeah, beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Riveting. So within that, you're saying that jump seat leadership is about lifting others and giving them the space they need so that when the time is right, they can take the lead. So you are in that formulation, inviting us to reframe leadership from the mindset of holding power to the mindset of distributing and giving power away. It really is a paradigm where power is abundant rather than finite, because we are looking to unleash the creative potential of the people we are collaborating and working with. Yeah, absolutely. And with jump seat leadership, 
that there are three practices which, when we focus our attention on those practices, enable us to create this environment where we lift others up and create leaders in them. So the first is commitment. The second is humble confidence. And the third practice is, is belonging. But it all starts with commitment. And commitment, well, it has its foundation in what is it that's deeply important to you as an individual? Things that I refer to as your non-negotiables. You know, because when we can tap into that, it creates an extraordinary amount of energy that helps us overcome challenges that we face along the way. Okay, so I'll give you an example of it. For many people, family is hugely important. I mean, it is. I've got a wife and two grown-up kids. But I remember a time about two and a half years ago when I received a phone call from my wife saying she'd been involved in a car accident. I was in the middle of work. I was sat actually here, but I dropped everything to go to her aid. She was only a couple of miles down the road. But here's the thing. I didn't know what I was stepping into. I didn't know what I would find. I didn't know what I would need to do. And yet there was absolutely nothing that would have prevented me from moving forward and going to her aid. Nothing. That energy was so powerful inside of me. and so. If we can identify other things which have a similar energy, a similar non-negotiable characteristic to them, that then can come together to act as a reservoir of energy when we find ourselves stepping into the unknown, when we're faced with uncertainty, change, or a future that we don't quite know how it will unfold. It gives us the ability to take those steps into the unknown. So that's the starting point, really, of jump seat leadership. It's not about other people. It starts right here with the person in the mirror, figuring out those deeply non-negotiable things which can turn into what we stand for. And you're also describing their commitment, a, a quality, a property of commitment that has about it their courage to embrace the unknown. Because in, in the way you are narrating their action driven out of commitment is you are literally to borrow the, the imagery of an Indiana Jones jumping into and now known for something else to pick you up, knowing that the tetheredness of your commitment will actually enable you to close impossible gaps. Absolutely. You know, and there's a progression here. We can all discover what our non-negotiables are. We can discover them through the choices we make in life. And I explain more about it in the book. And when we identify those and put them into words, they become stands. What we stand for is not about being against anything. That's negative. This is about being a stand for. And when we put those stands into action, then we come to the commitments we make. And commitments have got nothing to do with contracts or bits of paper or signatures. A commitment is internal. It's a promise that we make to ourselves. What is the, the place of fear? love, courage in this, because one can make a commitment out of fear, one can make a commitment out of love, and one can make a commitment out of courage, but you are somehow configuring here an anatomy, an inner anatomy of that property of commitment in a very particular way. So describe a little more, please. Absolutely. Everything we do in life that's important to us, everything is driven by the fear or is driven by love. Now, when I mention love, particularly in a business context, people can get a little bit jittery, but we'll come back to that in a moment. Let's start with fear, okay, because everyone can relate to this. When fear is triggered, well, it can be triggered when we sense our life is online. You know, if we step out into the road and there's an oncoming car, fear has us jump back, and that's good. Yeah, it keeps us alive. But thankfully, for most of us on a daily basis, our life isn't threatened. But fear can also arise in three other circumstances. It can arise when we sense that our livelihood, our status, or our reputation is under threat. And these can be triggered almost on a daily basis, particularly in business or in teams. And when we sense our livelihood, status, or reputation is on the line, then fear generates some really rather undesirable actions. 
drivers. Fear can show up as, well, instead of looking out, we close down. Yeah, it's a contraction reflex. It's a contraction, absolutely. Instead of seeing the world as a place of opportunity and possibility, we see it as a place of scarcity. We tend to view the world as, well, a binary sum where there's winners and losers and we've got to be the winner. And ultimately, with fear, when it's triggered by a threat to our livelihood, state or reputation, it starts to drive actions which ultimately hurt people. It does. And it is not sustainable. We cannot continuously live in a state of fear. It, It is not sustainable. The good news is we always have a choice. And that choice is to instead see fear as a warning flag and to choose to be driven instead by love. And in the context of business, you know, what what love looks like is seeing the world as a place of opportunity. Instead of closing down, we open up, you know, and we think of others, not just ourselves. You know, one of the big characteristics of fear is ego comes to the fore. Ego means I, yeah. But when we choose love, we have access to the antidote to ego, which is humble confidence. And humble confidence is all about having the confidence of our strengths and our abilities and being resolute on where we're going, but at the same time having the humility to listen to the input of others. And that is absolutely key. And when we choose to lead with humble confidence, it keeps ego at bay. So the pivot you're describing from fear to love is a learned reroute. It's a learned behavior. It's, it, this is a chosen pivot one can re-architect in the topography of their mind and their experience, correct? Absolutely. Let me give you an example, which I'm sure you will relate to. When you were going through your training as a pilot, because we've both been pilots in our time, so an untrained pilot, when they have an engine fire, what you have is a big red light, usually, and a loud warning bell. And to the untrained pilots, Fear can creep in. Your life is on the line, let alone your livelihood stays in reputation. And you can become frozen. You know, it's the freeze, fight or flight reaction. But what happens during pilot training, as you know, is we learn a series of actions that we can take, which are a considered response to the situation rather than a primeval reaction. Okay, and a response in the case of an engine fire, has been figured out by engineers and pilots in the the calm and peace of an office where they can work out exactly what needs to be done to address the situation. Then pilots train that to such an extent that when that red light appears and that bell goes with a warning of an engine fire, we can respond with those actions instead of being frozen by fear. And in that case, we're seeing fear as a warning flag to do something about it. And this is what I'm putting forward as the opportunity there is in business when it's livelihood, status, or reputation that's triggering fear. When we take the moment to see that as a warning flag, we then have the opportunity to respond from a place of love rather than reacting from a place of fear. And as you say, it's sort of reprogramming our neural approach to these things and ensuring that that primeval freeze, fight or flight doesn't guide our actions. Instead, we have a considered response, which is much more useful. So let's build on this idea of humble confidence as a chosen response and as one of the core principles of the leadership approach that you are describing. What is humble confidence? Well, I've touched on it already, but actually what I could do is give a a quick example because we all learn through through stories as one of your earlier podcasts uh, touched on. And it's another flying story, actually. I flew a passenger jet down to Nairobi in Kenya. I was 25 years old and I was the co-pilot, the first officer. And I was flying the aircraft, the, the captain alongside was supporting me. And on the final approach, about eight miles from touchdown, I ordered for the undercarriage, the wheels to be put down for landing. Only on this occasion, the wheels under the left wing did not come down. 
Now, in a big passenger jet, this is not fun. You know, you do not have the opportunity or the option, as you do in a fast jet, of pulling a handle and ejecting. You know, if you did that, there are 140 people left on board who'd be quite upset. So you need to stick with the aircraft. You also cannot pull for a high G to unlock there. You're, you're right. But actually, we did everything we could over about two and a half hours go through all of the procedures to get the, these wheels under the left wing down, including winching them down, which, you know, that's not a Tom Cruise moment when you go out onto the wing and winch them down. No, you've got to leave her below the flight deck. But we tried everything and nothing worked. And to your point, actually, we tried some not high G manoeuvres, but gentle aerobatics, which the passengers loved, I imagine, trying to shake these wheels down, but nothing would work. And finally, we're at the stage where we're getting very low on fuel. Everything else had landed at Nairobi, and we were faced with crash landing the aircraft, which was the only option left open to us. But it was at that moment that something happened that surprised me. The captain, by the name of Tony Webb, turned to me and he said, Peter, I want you to fly the crash landing. And that took me a little bit by surprise because traditionally, you know, it's the captain of the aeroplane that would perform this this action of crash landing, you know, is, is quite a serious thing. Uh, people, there's likely fire, people get hurt, etc. But no, he asked me, and on the face of it, it seemed very strange, but actually the context changed everything. Tony was a very experienced captain, but he was not that experienced on that particular aircraft type. Me, on the other hand, I was very experienced. I had thousands of hours on the aircraft. I was at the top of my game. I was one of just a few pilots who flew the British Prime Minister around the world in this aircraft because I was seen as uh, above average, very much above average flying that aircraft. And as it happened, just two weeks previously, I'd done a similar exercise practicing crash landing the aircraft. So it made absolute sense. And Tony gave me that responsibility and he supported me as I, I set up to fly this, this crash landing. Now, for me, this is one of the greatest examples I've had of humble confidence. Tony Webb, the captain, was absolutely confident in his strengths and abilities, and he was resolute on the outcome he wanted, which was us all walking away safely from the situation, landing safely. And yet he had the humility to engage with his team, including me, and to draw on their expertise to help figure out the best course of action. And for him, he subdued, it was the antidote to his ego. You know, it had been a classic, and there's been lots of stories where pilots of aircraft, their ego has got in the way with often disastrous consequences. Yeah, But no, Tony Webb had the humble confidence to ask me to do that crash landing. And when we have that humble confidence, it opens up all sorts of possibilities within our team. You know, away from play, I'm talking about the business environment, because it gives us the opportunity where we can tap into the expertise of those around us, get their input so as we can figure out the answers to the challenges that we face, rather than being the person who always has to be the one with the answer, you know, which is the traditional role of a leader. You know, it feels good to know the answer, but that does not tap into the entire potential of our team. You need humble confidence to be able to do that. The third principle you describe in Jump Seat Leadership is the idea of belonging. What is belonging and what is its place in this map of meaning that you are inviting us into? Well, commitment, humble confidence and belonging, as principles, they're all interlinked. Commitment, you need to be clear, this is about you. As an individual, you need to be clear what you stand for and what you're committed to. Humble confidence allows you to tap into the expertise of your team and work towards a shared commitment to bring something to existence that doesn't currently exist. That's leadership. But the missing piece of the jigsaw here is if people don't feel they belong. You know, a sense of belonging is something that. We all know we have when it's there as much as we all know when it's missing. And belonging is a fundamental need for the majority of human beings. You know, from age immemorial, we've come together 
in tribes to accomplish much more together than we would individually. And <laughs> there's this innate driver that we want to feel that we belong to a community, to a team, whatever it is. You know, <laughs> I remember when my teenage daughter years ago, you know, could I get her to put the her dirty laundry in a basket for washing? No, I couldn't. That was one of the biggest challenges, you know, <laughs> facing a lot of parents. But actually, if she needed an outfit, her favorite outfit to go out with her friends at the weekend, heck, she'd, she'd put that laundry in the basket if it needed washing. She'd probably wash it herself. Why? Wearing that outfit helped to feel that she belonged. So here's the thing. Where we create an environment as leaders, when we nurture that sense of belonging, when we make our commitment relevant to everyone on our team and they feel that they belong, magic starts to happen. That magic is that they start to step up. They start to take responsibility and choose to make a contribution to our team rather than waiting to be told to do something. In other words, people within our team start to lead. They become leaders. But without this sense of belonging, then commitment can't thrive with an organization. Leadership can't thrive from below. And people's contribution, that, that wonderful thing called discretionary effort, where people are choosing to do more than they would otherwise, cannot thrive either. So this is why we need to pay attention. A jump seat leader will pay attention to nurturing that sense of belonging, because that way they will get the most from their team. But more than that, every individual on the team will begin to thrive because they feel they are part of something larger than themselves. What is the idea of setting a context? And why is context setting so central for the leadership uh, process, for the leadership work? Well, context is is linked to many of the things we, we've discussed already, including commitment. But <laughs> I like things that come along in twos. And there are only two things in this world. There is content and there is context. Content is the stuff that we do, the things that we say, the work that we're engaged in. But content has got no meaning whatsoever without context. Context is what gives meaning to the work we do. I like to think of a jigsaw puzzle, like many of us had when we were young. All the puzzle pieces on the table, that's your content. But it's only when you see the picture on the box that you see the context and those puzzle pieces take on meaning. So here's the thing. In business, in a team, we all like to be focused on the puzzle pieces. We all like to be involved in figuring out the solutions to problems bring it all together. But a jump seat leader will focus more and more on context, that picture on the box, because that picture on the box needs to be as clear and as vivid and as vibrant as possible. Because when it is, people who are taking care of the puzzle pieces can figure out themselves how to bring them together to create the image or the vision that you're after. But the tendency is we get so involved in the detail and the weeds that we forget about the picture on the box. And if we as leaders forget about it, nobody else is going to be thinking about it. And then what happens, everything becomes uncoordinated. People start to drift apart. People forget the reason they're doing this work and the commitment they've made. Context is everything. And the more senior we are in organization, the more it lies to us to keep that picture on the box clear and vibrant. Context is everything. Implicit, Peter, in this, then, are three capabilities, three core competencies for leadership. And they include the capacity to connect the dots, yeah. the, the framing of the picture, and the storytelling that emerge out of that. So that's, that's what I'm hearing. That there is a connecting the dots framing and storytelling central to context setting. Yes, I would agree very much with that. You know, where, when I was a force commander leading a couple of hundred people during the 2003 Iraq war, you know, we flew large, undefended, unarmed air refueling aircraft. We gave gas away to, to fighter jets. And 
were a big aeroplane, easy to see, we'd often get shot at, which was a bit irritating after a while. But, you know, what I needed to do, the majority of my time during the four months I was deployed was keeping that picture on the box, the context very clear for my people. And the context was nothing actually to do with politics. That, that's largely detached. It was everything to do with the persons that left you and the persons to the right of you, you know. And as I told my aircraft technicians and engineers and my aircrew, the technician's job was to keep this 40-year-old aeroplane flying, regardless of lack of spares, weather, whatever. The pilot's job and the aircrew job was to fly every mission that we were given and refuel those fighter jets. Because if those fighter jets did not get refueled, the people on the ground wearing similar uniforms to us would not get the air support they needed. If they didn't get the air support, they would die. So that was a very clear, very vivid, very simple picture I placed on the box. But because everybody could relate to that picture and it was personal to them, they could figure out how to bring their part of the jigsaw into play to bring that picture to life. You know, I say it's related to this, management is about handling complexity, but leadership is about creating simplicity. And it relates directly to this picture on the box, creating that context, making it vivid and keeping it alive. So we're talking about context setting as a core element of the leadership work. What would you say are the top challenges for leaders right now through this time of disruptive change in just about any aspect of global trade and commerce and supply chain challenges and so on where and geopolitical shifts what are the capacities and the challenges first of all that, that leaders must reflect on and therefore address when they are endeavoring to set context well I think it will be different for every business. And depending on where you are, your sector, but also your geographic location. But I think in each case, there is something we can draw from the three practices of jumpsuit leadership. First of all, commitment. <laughs> what is your commitment? What are you committed to? How does it tie back to your stands, your non-negotiables, the things that are deeply important to you? You know, as Elon Musk said, after he had so many failures launching rockets with SpaceX, People asked him how he continued moving forward. He said, when something is important enough, you will do it anyway, even when the odds are not in your favor. And this is why commitment and where commitment comes from is so important when we're facing change and certainty and uh, turbulence in the world. We need to make sure our connection to what's deeply important to us, our stance, is kept solid. Because once we drift away from that, we lose access to that reservoir of energy that will keep us moving forward, even when times are very, very difficult. Secondly, humble confidence. When we come under pressure, our tendency as human beings, as leaders, is to tighten our grip, to tighten our control, because we're afraid of the unknown and uncertainty. But actually, we need to be doing exactly the opposite. We need to be having the leading with humble confidence, releasing the hold we have on our people, so as they are able to innovate and create, knowing that we have their backs, knowing that the context is the commitment that we've made that we share. And finally, belonging. In these times where teams are perhaps more distributed than ever, teams that, well, are used to hybrid working, where we're working from home or down a computer screen, or working alternatively in an office as well, we need to work harder on maintaining that sense of belonging. It is possible. You know, I, during my military time, I had people deployed all over the world, so I couldn't be physically there with them. But I retain that sense of belonging. And the starting point for retaining a sense of belonging is to show that we care. And caring goes beyond empathy. Empathy is, yeah, I get it. Caring is about a personal connection to the other human being. It's about grasping the opportunities for those one-to-one -one moments that we can create where 
for us is probably quite insignificant, but for the other person, it can hold significance for, well, a long time to come. It's like throwing a pebble in the pond. Those ripples can go far and wide. And when we take that moment to show that we care, which, by the way, doesn't need to take long. It can be a phone call, not a checkup on progress, but the check-in with people. How are you doing? You know, how are you you're managing it? I haven't seen you for a while because we haven't been able to work together or get in the same office together, but how are things for you? Is there anything else that you need to enable you to do your job better and contribute more? You know, it doesn't need to take long, but it's those often fleeting one-to-one moments that can nurture that sense of belonging. And when we nurture that sense of belonging, we reap the rewards through the commitment people show, taking responsibility and contributing more. So, yeah, we live in an uncertain world, perhaps more now than, than ever. But the practices of jump seat leadership can give us the lens through which we can focus our attention as leaders. Let's uh, trace uh, for a moment um, to earlier on your journey and share what brought you to really to the Royal Air Force in the first place. Well, quickly, it links directly back actually to non-negotiables that we talked about earlier. You know, I started off by going to university uh, to study two subjects about which I knew nothing. I was going to do a double degree in electronic engineering and computing science. And people thought I was mad. But the reason I chose to do that was because at the time, both my parents had lost their jobs. Going to university at the time was fully funded by uh, the UK government. And I felt that by studying those subjects, I'd be able to get a good job where I'd be able to support my parents and not be a burden on them. And that choice gave a big clue to one of my non-negotiables, one of my stands, and that's about being in a position to help others and not being a burden on others. But then halfway through my degree course, something else happened, which was... It was 1982, you know, hundreds of years ago, it feels now, but 1982, and down in the South Atlantic, Argentina invaded the Falkland Islands. And the Falkland Islands is a British dependency, British territory, the people there consider themselves to be British. Now, at the time, I knew nothing of the politics, but that was not important. What incensed me was someone was imposing their will on others. And I just felt that was not right. And so... Halfway through my degree, I left university to join the Royal Air Force because in doing so, I felt I would become part of a team who in future could help others in similar situations. And that was tied to what I now see as my stamp, one of my non-negotiables, which is the notion of mutual respect. And whenever I see mutual respect not happening, it triggers me because it is so deeply held by me as a a fundamental non-negotiable. So that was the catalyst for me joining the Royal Air Force when I was about 20 years old, I think, and I stayed for 25 years. (laughs) You spoke earlier about the Air Force training that enables us to reroute that primal reaction into a chosen, trained response It's very curious. Um, It would take me years after I left the Israeli Air Force and I was pursuing various meditative and spiritual and developmental practices to discover and reflect back that, see, the, the Israeli Air Force adopted some of the core training practices from the Royal Air Force. I don't know if you knew that, but that that is a fact. And, uh, It occurred to me that somebody in the Royal Air Force was either esoterically initiated or stumbled by luck on some esoteric practices. Because this idea that you're trained to program your response by speaking out loud what you do, which brings about four memories, the visual memory of the checklist that you memorize in the first place, the auditory memory of hearing your voice speaking those words, the kinetic memory of your actions and what you do, and the memory inside the context, the space, the environment you're in, in this case, in in the cockpit, and how when you integrate these four memories together, you are creating truly an engraved program in your system that will override the 
what you described earlier as the primal reaction of the fear, flight, freeze reaction. And so I'm curious, this is something we do in, in the Air Force. This is not something we do in the corporate space, but I became highly aware of that esoteric approach mm. to drive the impressions and the etched chosen responses. Is there any aspect of this that you bring to your work with leaders when you are trying to so powerfully drive the intent that they, you, you encourage them to wire into their actions in terms of commitment? I think you bring up a beautiful point, Aviv, and the, the short answer is yes. You know, I believe that there are examples of this sort of approach in business. And I'll give you one. Some years ago, I was running a workshop in Costa Rica for a company, wonderful company, Costa Mores. And uh, I was just wrapping up, noticeably before lunch, which, you know, I was hungry. So that was a factor here. And suddenly there was an earthquake. Now, I hadn't experienced an earthquake before. I don't think it was a massive one, but things did shift. The ground moved. And within moments, the person who was designated as the, the force supervisor for evacuation appears. Others appeared with first responder equipment. This is from within the company. You know, it wasn't their primary job. This was their, their um, earthquake response. And we followed a carefully practiced procedure to muster outside in a safe area whereupon uh, ambulances turned up and all the rest of it. Now, thankfully, nobody was hurt. But this is the thing. We in business now, or businesses can adopt the practices that you and I have talked about that happen in cockpits, not just military, but in civil airlines as well. We can predict situations where we could trigger a fear response. Earthquake, if you're in that sort of part of the world. Fire, a data breach, a major safety issue. We can, to a large extent, predict that some of these might happen. Now, when we do, we can then, when we have identified these, we do have the opportunity to sit down before that sort of event occurs and figure out calmly and sensibly what our reaction or rather what our response is going to be in just the same way as engineers and pilots have figured out the best way of handling an engine fire. And then we have the opportunity, should we choose to practice it so as you bring in all those aspects of memory that you mentioned to help people respond effectively? That is a choice. And here's another thing related to that. This is the only time in my view when what some refer to as a command and control version of leadership is applicable. Command and control is when you're telling people what to do, yeah? as was the case during this earthquake in, in Costa Rica. The floor supervisor came in and told us very clearly what to do, and we did it. Yeah? But as soon as that event, that emergency is over, we need to revert back to the jump seat leadership way of leading, where we create the environment for people to step up and contribute to the solutions, to the challenges that we're facing. Yeah? Because <laughs> if we continue the command and control approach, what happens is that create a culture where people wait to be told what to do. And that then means that the progress of our team is limited by our own knowledge as the leader. Yeah? So you're... So you're describing two ambidexterities in this um, approach to leadership. Ambidexterity one is, is know when you need to step into a command and control. And then as soon as that situation is over, step back or step forward into leading from the jump seat. And secondly, a little more contained uh, within that is the idea that there are situations where you, you're saying, like we practice in the Air Force, you need to run the simulator. You need to run through the motions. You need to have a ready-made program response as one side of the equation. And then you need to identify when you find yourselves in circumstances where you have not trained 
for, and there isn't a program response, and you are prepared to humbly lean into the discovery of not knowing together as a team effort. Absolutely. And just building on that very last point there, which I think is an excellent point you bring up, you will recall as a pilot, when you plan a mission, you would plan the mission, but you would also look at all the other possibilities that you could imagine, a change in the weather, uh, an unexpected issue with the aircraft to do with fuel or munitions, whatever it was, the more planning that you did to try and anticipate the problems that could occur, more often than not, none of those problems would happen. It would be something else that you haven't imagined. But all of that preparation beforehand, often as a team, would equip you, would give you the mental capacity to address the situation that you were facing calmly and from a place of response rather than a a reaction. So this, I think, is a really good point to bring up in a, a business context. The more we identify and predict those things that could happen, such as the earthquake response and a fire or a data breach or a safety issue, and we put into practice or put into place plans to deal with it, just that whole process will help us not only cope with those situations effectively, it will also enable us as a team to address the completely unexpected and the unknown. We become adept at handling crises. And, and that is the thing about jump seat leadership as well. It helps us not only in normal times, it helps us to equip our team to be able to handle extraordinary times of uncertainty and change and rapid injects that we had not thought about or could predict. It it strengthens that muscle. And that is so valuable. The greater return on the investment of planning and simulating and scenario building beyond the the detailed plans are indeed those capacities and resiliency that we are building uh, in all our operations. What was the high point for you and the key learning in your collaboration with uh, Simon, Simon Sinek? Simon Sinek, well, I'll be forever grateful for for Simon Sinek. When we met, good heavens, it's um, over 10 years ago now, I connected with him and long story short, he invited me or asked me to help take his message around the world. And so uh, I've traveled, I think, to 93, 94 countries. I've spoken and worked with practically every industry you can imagine. And it was a huge privilege to be able to do that. I learned an extraordinary amount. So the trust that Simon showed in me, you know, when he asked me to to speak on his behalf around the world, he'd never actually heard me speak before. (laughs) Which, you know, is immense trust to put in someone when you've built quite a reputation. So, yes, I will always be grateful for him, to him for that. You know, he lifted me up. And he gave me the opportunity to grow and to find my own voice too. And yes, it added to the extraordinary experiences I've had through a number of different careers in my life that uh, have helped me to put together the book that we've been talking about, Leading from the Jump Seat. Beautiful. My three exit uh, questions, Peter. If um, with all that you know today, what advice would you give your 25-year-old self? I would reiterate the advice that was given to me when I went through officer training. And at the time, I didn't know how profound it was, but I I have an inkling now of how profound it is. And that is be yourself. And quite often, what that means to me is quite often because of our our draw to the sense of belonging and wanting to be a part of something, it's very easy to, well, forget to pay attention to who we are, what we stand for, what do we believe in, what are our non-negotiables. And I think the joy of life is about the journey we take, we all take, learning who we are and be able to bring that to any situation and particularly through leadership. It's not about being authentic. You know, there's a lot talked about 
in in these circles on leisure about being authentic. But no, you give up being authentic or the right to be authentic when you're you're a young child, you're a young baby screaming because it's hungry or tired or whatever. That's authentic. But later on in life, we need to put in the filter of integrity. And integrity is about <laughs> knowing who you are as an individual, but also respecting the role that you have and how people look towards you for support. And that's integrity. And you can only have integrity when you really get to know who you are, what you stand for, what you believe in, and uh, what others are looking towards you to, to help lift them up. If you were to lose, Peter, all that you know, and keep only two ideas or two capabilities or two practices, what would you keep? Curiosity and humility. Curiosity I, and humility. As I, I travel around the world, you're being curious rather than, for example, being judgmental. When you, you listen and engage with people with an open mind, then you can learn so much more. And that in turn helps you to learn more about yourself, which in turn helps you to be yourself. So you have offered here plenty already. And inside the space uh, that we've been here in this conversation, as we bring this to landing, safe landing, what parting wisdom uh, do you want to offer to people listening to Create New Futures? I think there's been a few that we've already mentioned. I'd say this particularly in regards to leadership, leading yourself and leading others. Give yourself a break. What I mean by that is none of us is perfect. And in life and in leadership, for me, it's not about the, the individual data points. It's about our intention and the trend. If the way we lead ourselves, our lives and lead others comes from an intention of love rather than fear, That's where we want to be. If the trend over time is heading in the right direction, that's where we want to be. Intention and trend are so much more important than individual data points. We, you know, we will all trip up. I've tripped up. You've tripped up, I'm sure, in your time. And yet we get up and move forward and try to be better by 1% tomorrow than we were today. You know? So, yeah, go easy on yourself. Yeah. Beautiful. In leading yourself and leading others, give yourself a break. It's about the trend. It's about following that trend. And inside and as you journey on that progressive trend, be curious, be humble, and be yourself. Great summary. Thank you. Thank you very much, Peter. It's been delight. Thank you, Abby. Thank you for listening. Aviv always encourages his clients to identify the one or two ideas they can move forward into action immediately. What will you capture and apply today? You can always begin with a small action and then build momentum over time. When you move forward from an idea to action, you get immediate ROI, return on the time you invested, and return of learning. And then the learning cycle builds the success propulsion. One more thing. You can reach Aviv directly by phone and email to discover how he can help you create a new future for your business and organization. Creating your new future can begin today.